maybe I could do entrepreneurship a little bit differently than my parents did. Maybe I could build on the foundation that they had provided for me and kind of have the freedom that they had of not having anyone to answer to, but at the same time, think bigger, build bigger things, think bigger, not just in terms of revenue and size of company, but even just in terms of mission. Welcome everyone to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am so excited that you're here. Now, before I introduce today's incredible guest, I want to remind you that if you are enjoying the podcast, the best thing that you can do is to rate and review either on iTunes or wherever you are listening. It's the best way to help new people discover the show. And I am so grateful for your time. Today's guest is Natalie Molina Nino. What I love about Natalie is that she isn't satisfied with the status quo, and frankly, she never has been. Natalie launched her first tech startup at the age of 20, which kickstarted her path of being a game-changing force for women entrepreneurs. By her mid-30s, she had already built four companies and then surprised everyone by walking away from tech to pursue a theater degree from Columbia. But Natalie's entrepreneurial pulse couldn't be quieted, and she realized that she had an opportunity to make a lasting impact for women changemakers. Natalie went on to become the founder of Brava Investments, which targets funds that directly benefit women. And last fall, she published her first book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs, a collection of 50 hacks for startup founders who don't have access to the old boys network or Silicon Valley connections. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for having me. I have to say that bio and the way that you sort of tell the story makes me want to hire you to be my pitch woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that storytelling is really your superpower. So I'm definitely excited to get into that. But first, Natalie, set the stage for us. Where did you grow up and what was the mindset around money and success that was instilled in you? I grew up in Los Angeles with immigrant parents who um, actually had come to this country just a few years prior to me being born. And what I learned about money, and I talk about this a lot because what is interesting to me is when I meet families where, you know, it's it's sort of not polite to talk about money or, or politics at the dinner table. And that's all we talked about at my dinner table. So money was a part of the everyday conversation. And I have to say, um, it wasn't always great in the sense of I'm not necessarily drawing lessons today about what to do because it was a lot about making, you know, and exposing the kids to the problems, right? To the, what are we going to do? We can't make payroll or, you know, once they own businesses and before they own businesses, it was, you know, are we going to be able to pay the rent and later the mortgage? And can we really afford to send Natalie to this private school? What are we going to do? You know, um, in that sense, I think that you know, money was always present, but it wasn't necessarily a, a healthy relationship with it. But I, you know, I look back and I think, you know, on one hand, great, we didn't have a lot of it, and we had to be really scrappy about making do. That's always a good thing. Um, did it create a little bit of stress? Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. It made you sort of collectively as a family very aware of the struggles. But I also think that they did me a favor by making it 
something that is just never inappropriate to discuss. And it's why I think I broach the subject with ease with my colleagues and with my friends. And maybe why, <laughs> despite being the only woman in the room for most of my career in tech, I wasn't as afraid as others might be to get into finance. A lot of my friends were like, why would you go from tech to finance? Like basically from bad to worse. <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's where the root of a lot of the problems that I see in society are. And you know, if you're going to solve a problem, you got to get to the, to the root of it, right? Absolutely. And you know, I definitely want to circle back to that and to some of the ways that you rewrote those stories about money. I'm curious, you did mention that your parents were entrepreneurs. Was that something that was always your plan? You know, did you just know that being an entrepreneur was in your blood or how did that come about when you started your first business in college? You know, I didn't think it was going to be my plan. In fact, watching your parents struggle in the sweatshops of Los Angeles is kind of leaves you thinking, gosh, there's got to be an easier way, you know? And it's why I, I decided I, you know, I was going to go into the sciences. I was, in, I was studying engineering. I was going to be a scientist. And I had this romantic idea of what being a scientist was. You know, it was like the ultimate freedom, right? Of, of this romantic idea of the scientist living in the Amazon rainforest and not having a boss and not having anyone to answer to and just doing the work of like saving the environment. And what I learned in school after actually meeting some of those scientists and seeing how that business works is that you know you could be doing an amazing you know research study in the Amazon rainforest that's going to save the world, <laughs> but some bureaucrat somewhere in a main office, you know wherever your for example study is being funded, decides one day that they're going to pull the funding of your work and boom you pack up your stuff and you leave and and that's it the money dr- you know dried up and when I saw that and I saw that that was sort of the track that I was going on, I realized that that wasn't freedom right that that ultimately maybe I could do entrepreneurship a little bit differently than my parents did. Maybe I could build on the foundation that they had provided for me and kind of have the freedom that they had of not having anyone to answer to, but at the same time, think bigger, build bigger things, think bigger, not just in terms of revenue and size of company, but even just in terms of mission, right? How can I use things like business to help people like my family and make sure that you know, they have much more of a safety net and a set of resources and tools to be able to accelerate the path that they had, right? They spent a lot of years getting to where they are today. And if I were to go back and do it over for them, for them, I would not change a thing. I would just accelerate it. Tell me the story of starting your first business when you were in school. How did that come about? Um, I wish I could say that I had this ambition to be an entrepreneur and then poof, I did it. Um, That's not what happened. you know, my family would never have approved of me having a motorcycle. Um, and so while I was in school in Colorado, I, of course, got myself a motorcycle secretly. And then when I went home for the holidays, actually, to the Colombian side of my family, I was in Bogota. I, you know, had this new skill and I thought I was super cool and I knew how to ride a motorcycle. The long and short of it is I then got on an off-road motorcycle, managed to get myself into a accident it so that when I came back to school in January to start the spring term, my only form of transportation in college was a motorcycle at the time. And I had now a bum knee and a bum wrist and you know, no form of transportation. And so what I did, which I think is, you know, what my entrepreneurial parents absolutely taught me to do is I figured out a solution, right? And so I didn't have money. I had pride. I didn't want to admit to my family that I had this motorcycle. 
so I went to the dingiest sort of baddest looking little used car lot in Boulder, Colorado. I noticed that the guy didn't have a website and a lot of his large competitors did. I knew how to make websites. This was 1996. My friends and I had taught each other to code and really taught ourselves to code. And what I did was I said, look, I don't have enough money to pay for this Jeep Cherokee you have on your lot. I sold my motorcycle. I have this much, uh, which was about half. (laughs) I said, I'll trade you a website for the other half. The guy said, yes. Um, I made him a website. He was happy. Um, His colleague down the street who also had a car dealership noticed that he had gotten a good looking website for pretty cheap from a student. And I got my second client and then my third and on and on. And next thing you know, I I had a business. I had actually a thriving web development business in the mid nineties when that wasn't really a thing yet. Wow. You know, I think it's probably a more common story than people realize these sort of accidental businesses. It's something that I've actually heard from a number of my guests. And so I completely understand where you're coming from. But moving on from there, you grew this business and then went on to start and build four more businesses before you eventually left tech. Could you just guide us through what did that path look like? What were some of your biggest challenges as you built those businesses? I always felt like the things that were subject matter expertise were learnable. And I know not everybody feels that way, but I, I think that you know maybe that's the engineer mindset. Like You know that you can figure anything out, right? And so that wasn't a challenge for me. It's been intimidating. I mean, without a doubt, like um, going from making websites to suddenly over the course of my career in tech, becoming an expert at natural language processing, globalization, you know, computational linguistics. These are things that became eventually my area of expertise and beginning not knowing anything and learning about these things and learning sort of alongside with the whole world, because these were technologies that were just being developed, right? Was sometimes challenging and intimidating, but I always had this sense that I could figure it out. So, so to your question, if I struggled with anything, I would say it was more the human dynamic. I don't know that I'm a natural manager of people. I don't know that that's my strength. I don't know that it ever became my strength. I don't know that it's my strength now. It's a struggle and it's something that I constantly work on. I think that it's something I will always look to be better at. From when you're 23 and everyone that reports to you in a multinational corporation is older than you, and dealing with the sort of politics and the optics and the interesting diplomacy that you have to you know, navigate when that's the case, right? And trying to look older and putting your hair in a bun and wearing glasses when you don't need glasses just to make you look older to, to now, you know, where, you know, I'm in a very different place. And I realized that, you know, I'm exacting and I'm demanding and I want to be blunt and direct and say, this is wrong. It's got to be fixed. It's got to be done this way. And sort of realizing that I'm, I'm now in a position of real power and I have to be a little more careful about how I communicate my wants and my needs and how I want things to be done because sometimes I can be a little bit of a blunt instrument and people are, you know, receive my messages with great force and more force than maybe I even intend. Um, and so it's about softening, right? And it's about being more understanding and, and understanding what I like and what I don't like. And one thing that I've realized is that there's a, a number of studies and theories from the world of anthropology that say that once a group, a social group gets to be um, over there are different theories, some say 70, 80, 150. But once they get to be beyond what is sort of humanly manageable, so you can't remember everybody's name, you know, the family system gets to be of a certain size, then you have to create new villages, new <laughs> tribes, right? Um, systems and infrastructure to be able to manage things above that size. And what I've learned over the course of my career is that 
that's my sweet spot. I'm best in these smaller groups of people where I know everyone. Um, and once it gets to be beyond, say, 150, and this applies to corporations, companies, startups, then I start to have less fun. And so as I build my businesses and I think about what I'm doing next in my career, I start to see those preferences and those really self-imposed limitations that make me happy. Um, and I start to realize that I need to stay within those if I'm going to both thrive in business and thrive just psychologically. You mentioned the difficulties that came with being 23 years old and running a company in the tech space. But what about being a woman in the tech space? I know that so much of the impact you've really made and are continuing to make in your career is around making tech a more inclusive place for women where we can really thrive. So what was your experience like in your 20s being a woman in tech? We should frame it in terms of the timing too, right? Because I I hate to come to, say, a woman in tech today and try to compare my experience with hers because the reality is, is we have half as many women graduating with degrees in engineering today than when I was starting, right? So it's changed and, and things are moving in the incorrect direction. It's the reason that the work of Kimberly Bryant from Black Girls Code is important. It's the reason that the work of Reshma Sajani, right, at Girls Who Code is important. Girl Develop It, right, started by Vanessa Hurst. Like all of these projects and these friends of mine who are doing great work are doing it because it's absolutely necessary. And so a woman experiencing that today is experiencing something, in my opinion, far worse than what I experienced. And so in in the mid-90s, you know, it was tough. It was definitely tough. I was definitely the only woman in the room most of my career. But it was almost not so clearly defined as the boys club. It was almost no one's club. It was sort of uncharted territory. So none of us sort of knew any better. And I certainly didn't know or come from the place of like, this isn't where I belong. You know, let me, you know, charge forward and and go sort of against the grain. There was no real grain to go against. And so in that sense, it was less of a breaking of a glass ceiling and more of creating something from nothing, right? And that does come with its challenges and it's hard. And definitely people underestimate you and, you know, weird things happen where your colleagues get spoken to by male clients one way and you get spoken to in very different ways. And people look at your partners thinking that they're, you know, in charge when in fact you're the CEO. You know, those things happened then and they continue to happen now. Working with so many women entrepreneurs in tech and outside of tech, you know, the stories that I hear are really familiar. Um, and that's kind of what fuels me. And it also, you know, what fuels me too is the fact that this next generation of women that are in the thick of it and sort of starting off in tech right now are so much less tolerant. And I'm so freaking proud of them for being less tolerant because they're experiencing a lot of the things that I experienced and that my peers experienced. The difference is that we didn't speak up and the women now are speaking up and they're being smart about it. They're creating alliances so that they're not just one voice in a room, they're a collective. You know, you can ignore one voice, you can't ignore a cacophony of thousands of us, right? And so I think I'm, I'm careful. I'm careful to talk about my experience and conflate it as something that women today can relate to because I do think women today have a whole new set of challenges and, um, and they're braver. They're braver than we were. Gosh, it's fascinating to put it in that sort of context. Do you think times have changed in terms of the way that men are recognizing this issue? Is there... I guess any sort of tide turning in the tech world with men being more cognizant of these problems at minimum or, you know, hopefully starting to work in the right direction? 
Or is that not really something that we're seeing yet? Oh, to be in the mind of the modern man (laughs) and (laughs) opine on where they are and what they're thinking. Look, what I can tell you is what the studies show, right? And the studies are interesting because at first glance, what the studies at a peripheral level and maybe sort of at at a maybe superficial level say is that the next generation of men are less married to the conventional sort of gender normative roles, right? And that they're more progressive and they're more interested in equity and these sorts of things. But the studies that go a little deeper, the studies that push the envelope a little more, like there was this one study that talked about how, yes, young men were given all the answers that we're used to having them give, right? I want my wife, if I ever get married to, you know, equal in all things and all these sort of responses that we've come to sort of expect from the later generations. But then when they were asked, well, what happens if things don't go exactly to plan? What, what happens if you don't get your dream job, if the finances aren't as well, you know, don't go as well as you'd hope, then what do you do, right? And what happened with young millennial Gen Z women is their answer was, well, I'll postpone. I'll postpone getting married. I'll postpone, you know, having a child. They wouldn't compromise on their financial stability, on their role, on parity, on their, you know, desire to, to really, you know, have power in personal and professional dynamics, they wouldn't compromise. And instead, what they would do is postpone these things until they could have them, right? But the men, when asked, what would you do if things didn't go well? Sort of what would your plan B be? And their plan B answer was basically reverting to the thinking of their dads and their grandpas, right? Well, then my wife would stay home. Well, then I would just... <laughs> be the sole breadwinner and take over for this. And I would, it just shows to me that I think that we're not there yet. I still think that we think parity and really justice for women on all levels as something that's a nice to have if everything goes okay. Right. And that's concerning. That's concerning to me because things are not okay. And climate change is going to make things worse in my opinion. And so we're going to find ourselves as a society in situations of crisis again and again. And when these heteronormative sort of roles are still sort of hardwired into the brains of part of society, I just think it means we have a lot more work to do. And especially the moms and the aunties like me, we have a lot of work to do um, with the kids that we're bringing up. I'm curious, you just said something about how climate change is going to play a big role in this. What do you mean by that? In any scenario that you look at, whether it's water scarcity, whether it is disaster recovery, like the likes of which we see happening in Puerto Rico and the region in the Caribbean, people being displaced, immigration, refugees happening because of climate change. In any of those situations, the people who bear the brunt, the vast majority of that negative impact are women. So that puts us in a precarious situation with some of the things that are to come because of climate change, right? It means the people that are already more vulnerable are likely to be impacted most. And so that's something that to me puts a little bit of a, of a time check on the work that I do, right? It, it puts everything on an accelerated path. It means that my urgency to make sure that women are on equal footing, women are economically empowered, that they have you know, that nest egg to be able to deal with an emergency when it comes, you know, my timeline for that is so much more accelerated now when I think about what's, what's coming, right? And how uh, women are more exposed. Or, um, or the negative impacts of so many of these things, right? I mean, there are just so many ways you could talk about the devastating impacts of climate change, and I'd never put it in that context. So that's absolutely fascinating. 
Well, Natalie, moving back to your story, you walked away from tech to go to Columbia and study theater. You'd had a massively successful career up until that point. So why did you do that? What prompted the decision? I'm going to give you the the canned answer and then I'll tell you the more uh, complete answer. So the canned answer was that I was burnt out from tech. I wanted to take a sabbatical and that I knew that my sort of secret sauce in business and the thing that had given me a competitive advantage throughout my life and my career at that point was my storytelling skills. I knew that and I thought, well, if I'm going to take some time off, I have to think about something productive to do with that time because I'm just that sort of person. The idea of like sitting on a beach for a year wasn't, wasn't going to work. I need to immerse myself in a world that's different from tech. And I, if there's a skill that I want to polish, it would be that one. It would be this, this skill that I already think I'm sort of moderately good at, but I could be so much better. And who better to learn that skill from than theater people in New York City? I mean, talk about going to the mountaintop, right? Like that's as good as it gets. The truth is that that is true. However, the reason that I left tech was largely because of an actual physical burnout that manifested itself in basically my adrenals being shot. For people who are not familiar with adrenal glands, it's stress-related. It's what happens when you know, that natural system in our bodies, that fight or flight, you know, that these beautiful systems that our bodies are naturally equipped to handle panic and stress, you know, but when that lion in the jungle is done with chasing you, right, your, your adrenals, they relax and you get into sort of normal mode, right? You can't constantly be in stress. My life is in danger mode. But, you know, modern day work environments, you know, the 2009 economic crisis, having thousands of people reporting to you and losing sleep every night because you're worried that you want to be sure these people have jobs next quarter, living in a constant state of stress, living on airplanes the way that I did, um, and not having really any balance, I ended up essentially burning out my adrenals. And to the point where I, um, I was sick, I was pretty sick. And I had a doctor who was really frank and really forward tell me in no uncertain terms that this was not something that a vacation and a spa would fix. This was not something that I could just sort of incrementally adjust. This was something that required a massive change in my entire lifestyle. Um, and she said, you know, you need to think about making a, a real big shift here because this is, this is headed in the, back, in, in the wrong direction. And when she did that, she said that to me, I realized, you know, I must have been at a place where I was open to listening because I realized that I was looking for an excuse to leave. And I think because of what you said, right, this sense that like you're at the top of your game, that is not the time to leave your career. There was this sense of other people believing that I should be doing X, Y, and Z, and therefore that's what I was doing. But in my heart of hearts, I was done. And so it was funny when she said, you really got to change your life. I was so ready to hear that. I was like, okay. So I sold everything I owned except for my art. I spent the next few months working on my exit strategy. I replaced myself with about five people <laughs> and I left and I, I never looked back um, and I didn't regret it. I moved to the place in the world where I feel the least stressed and the most happy, which is Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, that's wild to me. No one understands that. But when you run fast, it's a lot easier to go to a place where everybody's running at your speed because you sort of feel like the current takes you. Whereas for me, the West Coast can be a little stressful because I feel like I'm constantly shoving everyone to be faster, to meet the deadline, to do the things. Like I'm the cheerleader that sort of propels everyone forward. 
New Yorkers do not need me to propel them forward or anything. <laughs> They're already going at a million miles a minute. And, you know, I can just sort of exist here. So what changed then? After you studied theater and you ended up going back into tech, obviously you didn't want to repeat this history of getting burned out and getting sick. What changed in the way that you operate? I spent my time away from tech and during what I sort of called my sabbatical, essentially doing a couple of things, you know, looking at what are my non-negotiables, even in my personal life. I was in a lovely relationship with a lovely human being um, who I'm still friends with. But it wasn't purposeful. You know, it was sort of like I had defaulted to a lot of things. And I think that what I realized is that you cannot remove the ambitious gene from an ambitious person. So I will always be pushing forward for something. But I was doing what I was doing for 15 years, essentially to make very wealthy men wealthier. You know, Microsoft was one of my biggest customers. In the time that I worked with them, they went from having 30 to 40% of their business globally and being primarily an American-based business in the US to having over 60% of their revenues existing internationally and they became an international company. Great. Guess who benefited from that? Bill Gates and a handful of other folks, right? And so I realized that that same energy and that same drive could be channeled into doing things that actually filled, for me, the tank in other ways so that it wasn't just about channeling energy into making money, right? I could channel energy into doing things that actually filled my spirit. And so during my time in theater school, I met a woman by the name of Catherine Colbert, um, who is the woman who saved Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court in 1992. And she and I ended up co-founding the Center for Women Entrepreneurs while I was at school at Columbia studying theater. And there were a few people who pushed back. They were like, Natalie, you're supposed to be taking time off. You're supposed to be, you know, doing this thing with theater. But the reality is, is, you know, as challenging as Columbia is and as amazing as this program is, I had spare time and I I wanted to fill it. You know, I was used to working startup crazy hours. I wasn't going to just fill it completely again, but I did have bandwidth and I knew how to be efficient with my time and I knew how to accomplish a lot and be really efficient with limited time. And so she and I started to work together. We co-founded the Center for Women Entrepreneurs that sits um, at Columbia inside of the Women's College at Barnard. And I learned that you can work smart, you can work purposefully, um, you can work in ways that don't just deplete you, they actually fill up the tank on many ways, emotionally and psychologically. And that changed everything. So, you know, do I work less extreme as I did when I was in tech? Yeah, I, I get my, in my case, not everyone needs as much, but I need my seven or eight hours of sleep every night. There are certain things that are non-negotiables, like I walk my dog every morning, I get help and I have other people, you know, walk her in the evening because I have dinners and events, but mornings are sacred. You know, I don't have any business meetings before 10 a.m. I'm not a morning person. I love my morning walks in the park with my dog. You know, so there are just a few things that are non-negotiable and my team knows that. And no matter how busy things get, I sort of keep those things sacred. And I I have to say, I'm still learning. You know, it's easy to have a work-life balance when you're not working and you're on sabbatical. Right. So I went from one extreme to the other. And now the challenge that I'm facing today is like, how do I join those two worlds? How do I join the path of being purposeful, being very active in the things that I believe in, having a business that is in the business of making money while also making an impact? So I'm in a new phase of my life. And now I'm sort of mixing those two things and figuring out how to continue to make it work and stay healthy. I absolutely love that. 
I think it's so important for all of us to really take a look at that way you described it. What are your non-negotiables? What do you need? And then making those things a priority. Natalie, the first time I actually heard your name was when I was reading Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone. You're actually called a super connector in that book. So real quick, I'm hoping you could share with us what is your best tip on networking, especially for young professionals? My best tip is one that I share with my students uh, at Columbia at Barnard, which is when you are out there and you are connecting with people and you are not a known entity, right? And so people are less inclined to respond to you. It's very easy for me to say, I published a book and I'm known in this industry and I, get, I send emails and people respond. Well, yeah, because I'm not just starting. I'm not a 19-year-old in college trying to build my network from scratch, right? And so for those people that are just starting off and have trouble getting people to respond to them, my suggestion is make like a goldfish. And that comes from a line in a song that Ani DeFranco wrote, which I love, which is that the little plastic castle for the goldfish is a surprise every time, right? Because they have no short-term memory. So every time they circle the little fishbowl and they look at the little plastic castle, it's a surprise. And so if you write me an email saying, hey, Natalie, I saw you speak at whatever, and I'd really like to connect with you, blah, 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 and I don't respond. And then you write me a second one and you're like, hey, I wrote you last week and you haven't responded. And I just wanted to ask you, blah, blah, blah. And then I still don't respond. Third email, hey, I've now written you three times and you haven't responded. Every single time that you're writing me, the tone is getting progressively less fun. If I'm seeing those emails and if in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, I should respond to this person. And every email that comes gets progressively sort of less friendly or just less fun. That quote from Maya Angelou about people don't remember what you did, they remember how you made them feel. Well, think about how you're making that person feel on the other end. You know, most people are fairly conscientious and they do, you know, they don't feel like me being made to feel guilty, you know, in their inbox. It becomes this thing that you dread opening and reading. Uh, maybe now they associate that with you and every time they see your name, they just delete it, you know, off the bat. So if instead you make like a goldfish and every email reads like it's the first one and you don't remind them about the second or the third or the first, right? You just email like it's the very first one. And not only that, you add value. You say, I was reading this article. I know that you care about X, Y, and Z. I thought you might find this article interesting. Now you're not just making like a goldfish, but you're adding value. Maybe I didn't see that article. And information is valuable, especially to me as an investor, right? All information, if it's relative, relevant to what I'm doing is valuable. Now somebody's just given me access to something I hadn't seen. My time is precious. They've curated something for me. Amazing. And they, I don't even remember the second or the third or the fourth email, right? So it's a subtle thing, but it really makes a difference. And it drives up the likelihood of people responding to you and connecting with you. I just love how tactical you went with that answer. That's something that people can go implement immediately and change the way that they're communicating. And I know that there is lots more of amazing ideas like that in your book, Leapfrog. So I definitely encourage everyone to go and check that out and check out what's happening with Brava, investing in these businesses that are benefiting women. Unfortunately, Natalie, we are running out of time. So I would love to move into the impact round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like for you to just respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? Yes. Okay, so who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success? My grandmother, my abuelita Blanca, who 
somehow made do as a seamstress in the sweatshops of LA and always had a little extra to get her through a rainy day. Love that. Then Natalie, who is the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and really make an impact? Catherine Colbert, who is credited again with saving Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court in 1992. When you're having a bad day, what do you do to get yourself out of the slump? Do you have any sort of regular personal development practice? I once watched a skit, a comedy skit about a a woman, Sarah Jones, who I, uh, she's not really a comedian, but this was a funny part of her skit where she said that when things get tough, she just closes her eyes and says, Sotomayor, Sotomayor, again and again. (laughs) And I actually stole that from her because I literally just think of that amazing woman sitting in that Supreme Court with some, in my opinion, less amazing people around her. And I think if she can do it, I can do it. That's so powerful. And Natalie, what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? Because people come to me for business advice. If I'm not recommending my book, I recommend E-Myth Revisited. It is a book that some people might think doesn't apply to them because it's about franchises. But in fact, it applies to anybody doing anything in business if the goal is to grow. Mm-hmm. Yes, that book massively changed the way that I operate my agency. So I couldn't agree more. And then lastly, Natalie, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you would give our listeners? One of my mentors told me when I had a pretty serious bout of imposter syndrome, which tends to hit me when I'm starting new things, which ironically happens to be the thing that I'm known for being really good at, was she said, she gave me this mantra, which is, uh, you are the source of your own supply, which is probably the best thing, not just for feeling inadequacy, but it's just around being happy, right? When people deplete you and then you have a way of reminding yourself that they are not the ones that dictate what your state is going to be, right? That they don't get to decide if you're happy or not happy or depleted or not depleted. Um, it's a really good reminder that um, you know it's your choice. You are the one who fuels going in one direction or another, and that includes happiness. Wow. You are the source of your own supply. I absolutely adore that. And Natalie, just to wrap up this show, as you know, here we have the do well and do good challenge. This is where I encourage our listeners who do want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by my guests. Could you tell me what organization you're nominating and why it's so meaningful to you? Yes. Um, The National Institute for Reproductive Health, led by an amazing woman named Andrea Miller, is one of those exciting little organizations that a lot of people don't know about because it focuses on the areas that a lot of big organizations don't serve. So think about the fact that in Indiana, most women are hundreds of miles from a women's clinic to be able to get free breast cancer screenings or any other women's health related procedures. You know, the National Institute for Reproductive um, Health supports those pockets of the country that are not supported by larger other organizations. Andrea Miller is a rock star and I'm so proud of of the work that they do. And I'm working on an effort to try to take the birth control pill over the counter. There is no reason why it requires a prescription. And so I've been working with Andrea and her organization very closely on that project. And I know firsthand that they are absolutely doing amazing work and deserve all the support they could possibly get. Amazing. Well, we will absolutely link to that organization in the show notes as well as to your book. And finally, Natalie, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and to follow your content? So they can learn all about me actually at leapfroghacks.com. It has 
information about the book. It has information about me. It has audio and interviews with all sorts of people that are in the book that go well beyond what you're able to squeeze into a few hundred pages in a book you sell in print. So that's probably the best way. And I keep um, my events and where I speak and everything sort of up to date there as well as uh, all my social channels. So it's leapfroghacks.com. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been so much fun to have you. Thank you. Have an amazing day. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests. Send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before that I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard, and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.